Hey, hey, yo. Welcome to my podcast, Melanated Stamps. My name is Dr. Jenea Perdue, and I am currently an expat in Shenzhen, China, but my roots are Denver, Colorado. Um, As you may know, Denver is known to be a city that is very white and there that is very very true so 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 many people are melaninless if that's a word um but there are some incredible and prolific and brilliant and change making individuals who are of color black folks in Denver and this is my series called hashtag Denver while black and I um, converse with them to hear their story I personally believe in the power of the narrative for collective liberation and freedom and so when we put um, faces and stories and voices to the statistics and data and news news stories that we are bombarded with we most of the time develop empathy and a desire for advocacy and figuring out ways that we can make the world better um, by doing small things in our everyday life. So um, without further ado, this is Reverend Dr. Jose Silva. You can find his work on his Facebook page and also on his website, Dr. Silva for Dr. or Dr. Silva for Denver Kids. Um, all of the links and his photos and things are on my website, melanatedstamps.com, and also on my Instagram page, Melanated Stamps, which is M-E-L-A-N-A-T-E-D-S-T-A-M-P-S. Um, he is running for school board right now, and so wherever you may be in if you have the ability to vote, go vote and be sure to follow up on what these folks are doing. Keep our government officials accountable for their promises that they are doing right now and support those folks um, as we are adding diversity to our um to our government because um, without diverse voices, it is really hard to make change for diverse people. Um, yeah, so feel free to send coins to support, um, love on, follow, tell other folks about my work at Melanated Stamps and also Dr. Silva's work um, as he continues to do great things in Denver. So without further ado, y'all, it's Reverend Dr. Jose Silva. Yay! We are on! Welcome to Melanated Stamps, everyone. My name is Jenea Perdue, and I have an amazing guest, a really great friend of mine, who is Black in Denver. Um, can you introduce yourself to all the people? Yes, good. good uh, welcome, everybody, and it's just a pleasure to be with all of you. I'm Dr. Jose Silva, and Jenea, thank you so much for the invitation to be with you today. Yay! Excellent. I just love how you put the doctor in front of your name, because I knew you before you had the title. So. <laughs> <laughs> and those that knew, and those that knew me before can call me Jose, Joseph, friend, brother. So you're all good. You you got it. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes, excellent. Um, so the purpose of this conversation is basically just to like get your story, your perspective. Um, are you a Denver native, or how did you get to Denver? 
born and raised. Our family is uh, ninth generation Coloradoans, and my mom's family was in Antonito, Alamosa, Colorado, and came up to Denver in 1922 and settled on 29th and Larimer. 29th and Larimer has changed so much. The, the house is no longer there. It's apartment buildings, 2937. Larimer is not a one-story home. It's now this five-story brick apartment building. Um, yeah, definitely changed. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So did you stay in that home the whole time? and Or how did you maneuver yeah. around in your upbringing? Yeah, great question. Uh, so actually, no, I never lived in that home. I um, My mother is the, the youngest of 11 siblings, and I actually grew up in West Denver and in Montbello, um, kind of all over. My father was murdered. My mother was six months pregnant. And so mm -hmm. we lived um, with family members and the projects, and then I found my mother's uh, girlfriend dead of a drug overdose when I was four years old. And so we just kind of were ever, just kind of all over the city, um, different places, but uh, never, lots of my family had remained in the East side, but I never got to, got to see that house. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. What a journey. So um, what does Denver mean to you? Oh, you, that's a powerful question. I think Denver to me um, is a place of rich historical significance that is, has been a beacon of hope to so many. It was a place of revolution, a place of activism, a place of love and hope. And so that was really the true foundations in which I was raised in. Denver has really changed into this um, international city of acclaim. Um, but yet I always say Denver still doesn't have its identity. We've identified who we are culturally, but who are we in terms of this identity? We're the queen city of the Rockies. Um, you know, we were a cow town in the eighties and then we were like this kind of tech and boom. And, but we're, we're I, I think Denver is um, becoming a place, um, that is, is one that is unsure of its identity and is struggling to figure that out. Really? Why do you think that, um, now Denver is struggling with its identity? Yes, you know, a great question. I think partly because you have 120,000 new residents that uh, come to a new city over time. Denver ballooned from 500,000 to almost 750,000. We have 4.5 million in the metro area. And so when you come, you come with these different ideologies and the numerous individuals come into the city aren't representative. You think of those in our in our city and in our state, one, one in three have a college degree, yet um, those aren't representative of black and Latinos, uh, of, black, of the black community and those that are obtaining those degrees. And so then who is really obtaining the economic wealth? Who is able to afford the million dollar homes in our city? Um, mm. my, my wife and I were recently looking for homes about a year ago and there was a home that I knew costed $30,000 in the West Side that was going for 800 grand. I, there was no way, like somebody who grew up here that knew my friends that lived in that house and what their parents paid for that was gonna pay 800, there was just no way. And so you think about if you're somebody here that doesn't get the opportunity to go to college, or doesn't get the opportunity to make it out of poverty, um, there are there, there is the city of the have and have nots, and it's and it's only blocks apart. And so how do we create uh, social economic mobility for the those that are the natives, but also then create social economic equality and opportunity for everybody in our city? And so Denver is struggling with that right now in terms of who their identity is. Interesting. So I hear you say that 
Um, there's the have and the have nots. There's the people coming into the town and you have the locals and then you have the white folks and then you have the black and brown folks and they're all trying and you know you have one house that used to go for a, a little bit of money now it's going from an astronomical amount of money so who is getting what right now um if you're not making six figures and you're not a two two income household it's really tough it is really tough right and so you think about when we talk about gentrification it's done. It happened, right? Like it's not when when people think of when I see gentrification, not has like this ongoing, but if it if the act of gentrification takes place, then it will continue, right? It's not like how do we stop it? The act of gentrification has taken place in some of our in some of our communities, and how do you go backwards? You you can't. And so how then do you? Uh, force the historical significance and recognition of that. And that's the battle that we're having in our community. Black communities, five points. How do you force a community that is changing and, and the leadership is changing uh, to say, we need to remember this when we can't afford to buy these buildings, the Rossonian and those. And so I'm glad that some of these buildings are being bought up by Chauncey and some of these other groups and uh, the, the uh, Puckert family. <clears throat> but those are, those, those are small right, indentions in this larger scheme of things that Denver didn't prepare for. You know, we were at Cowtown, so when 2010 happened, there was no plan. And so the, the result of what is happening today is that, uh, yes, Denver's a great place to live, 300 days of sunshine. Um, again, schools, you can't say all schools are great. You live in Southeast Denver, all schools are green. You live where I live in far Northeast Denver, our schools are struggling, right? We're trying to get funding. Our kids, our families are struggling. We have the highest number of COVID deaths in, in, the, in the city mm-hmm. and the highest number of unemployment uh, in, uh, due to the, to the pandemic. So you, you see those that are able to, to make it um, and, and those that, have been, uh, that are just striving to, to, to survive every day. Yeah, so many people that I've interviewed for this um, that I'm working on have said, you know, they have the anger, they have the sadness about like the black and brown areas being gentrified and like where, uh, knowing where it came from or what it used to be and now what it's not anymore. But then you said something interesting about how gentrification is done, but now we need to do something with the economics in order to um, level the playing field almost or to give, to scaffold it a bit so that folks can actually afford and have a chance in Denver. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, it, you are. And, 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 and people, when I say that, are like struck by that. They're like, what do you mean? Like, and I'm all, if the act of, the act of gentrification is the ide- ideology to change a certain neighborhood, right? Once, once the, the zoning takes place, once a few buildings have gone in and, and the change is made and you see the, the, the domino effect of that, that is done, right? And so we have to, we have to be, we have to, as we think about these communities, we have to think about what gentrification, what that looks like beforehand. What do we do to invest in this community so that those that are in the communities that haven't been gentrified can remain in their homes? What do the community centers look like? What do, what is addressing the food deserts look like so that these families then, because food deserts are disappearing once the communities gentrify. Look at North Denver. North Denver has a Sprouts and Natural Grocers and two blocks of each other on 38th and Tennyson. That was the hood growing up. But mm. you you change the community once, 
and you start to shift it, you get all of these things, right? Within a block and radius of each other. And so um, you, it, it's, it's what you do before gentrification takes place. And that's what we failed to do in this city is to think about what city planning is. Denver, Denver, Denver and Colorado didn't think that they would be this booming place. So now what you do is you create barriers, right? And you create boundaries to help mitigate some of this that is encroaching into some of these communities. And what does that look like? That we have an opportunity for that. For some of this, the gentrification has already taken place. The level of the, when that's what I mean by that, the level of the playing field is equitable access to strong ed education, equitable access to strong workforce development and internship and opportunities. You know, I think about out here in the far Northeast, there is no damn reason why we're not partnering with all of these businesses and creating an internship opportunity where students can go to school four days a week and one day a week, then they're interning at these different businesses and companies and learning different skill sets. Maybe they want to become a pilot. I, you don't need to go to college to get into the FAA. You can go to the military. You can work your way up and make $150,000 without a college degree. Like we're not showing our kids that there's other avenues and other ways. And that's because we're not, we're focused on uh, patchwork. And so our country and our people have always been about um, intervention instead of prevention. And we know that for those of us that have gone through therapy, prevention would have been a hell of a lot cheaper in our life if our parents didn't and then all of that, right? And so it's the same thing with uh, it, with our societal problems as well. Wow. So who is doing this work right now? And like, what are some of the initiatives that you see that are like, because um, you, you shared like the what the problems are and we get it. We, you share, you have the data, we get it. But like, who is doing the thing that is um, that you see as this is good work? This is the equitable work. Yeah, there is there is amazing work going on. I call them we're all foot soldiers for the greater good. So those are the mm -hmm. people that are doing the work that aren't in the suits and ties that aren't making the six figures, but that are saving our communities. And so I think mm -hmm. about out here in, in, in the far northeast. Um, we are getting new, uh, new grocery stores, you know, Chris Martinez and his community. And I think about uh, Faith Bridge and the work that they're doing around education in the far Northeast. In Southwest Denver, I think of Adelante and the Westwood Padres Unidos and the work they're doing to really energize and create. But more importantly, Paulina Riceras, who's leading this, this movement around mental health wellness and lactation support and, and prenatal support of families, right? about how do you engage around EI work, early intervention work happening down in Southwest Denver. Then I think about social mobility and economic mobility, which is generational wealth. <clears throat> Jay Salas and the work that his office is doing out of the fin Office of Financial Empowerment with Alvin Tafoya, Veronica Barala, and Newset and the work that they're doing. And then I also think like of the African American um, uh, Institute for Health, I believe, uh, I might be getting wrong, located in the Holly Center that is engaging in this work of going into black communities and saying, let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about mental wellness. Um, and then there's some great filmmakers that are doing, um, that are producing documentary films, Lisa Sabi, Parents to Parents, that are highlighting what is taking place in our communities, going sane, um, American tragedy, and they're doing American hope, um, just highlighting this. And then just so many foot soldiers, Ricardo, who's the Bondosillos and, and Don Beato, who's delivering groceries, over 50,000 meals to kids recently um, in our community that are just standing in, right? Um, there's just, I, I, and I smile as I'm thinking about all these people uh, that are just, just doing this work and fighting like to, to ensure that there's equitable access um, in our community. 
Oh my gosh, that gives me so much hope because I see, I get so overwhelmed and so frustrated with the data. Um, and I'm glad that you are humanizing the data and that there are people who are not focused on making the six figures, but are like, we're going to fix this community and we're, um, we are going to be working together in order to make this a place for everybody to have a fighting chance. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that, you know, I, I, I think about um, the mothers, the single mothers that have found a way for their kids in this community. I, 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 I work with a lot of single mothers. I've coached their kids. And I go on, I want to give it up to those mothers that have come from the community and have fought tooth and nail to change the life for their children, right? And and so those are those these those are some unsung super heroes right now, right? That are changing the life of their children. And so uh, in this moment, I also want to give it up for them because you can see these groups of communities coming together and really coalescing around each other. And um, these kids are graduating from high school, going to college, they're working and and and, and making it, right? And so I, I think we want to also recognize those, those, those single mothers that are killing it out there, so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you um, are giving the, the props to where props are due because the moms, the women, the single moms, like it is, it is hard. It is so, so hard. And they're consistent. They're doing great. Yeah. And do you making single moms, you better get it together because uh, uh, we hold you accountable too. So uh, that's another problem in our city is um, we're trying to figure out how do we keep families together, right? And when you are, uh, uh, when you, when you, when you don't come from family structure, like, how do you keep strong family? And so that's therapy. So we're working with a lot of young men, and there's a lot of men's groups, young fathers out there that are bringing and reconnecting fathers as well. So I don't want to just shit on the on the men out there, um, but I, but it, I, let's just there's a reality um, that we have a broken system that is not prepared men, black men, and brown men to be good fathers. And so we're working on that too. For sure. Oh my gosh, that's so great. Um, so what is happening with? Um, what is, so can you share with me a little bit about your own racial identity and your, yeah. like how you identify? Yeah, it, this is where I struggle, right? And I talk about this is, um, my father was murdered. So when I was born, um, everyone around me was brown. Like I, my sister and I were the dark skin. My sister's about your color. Janae, I'm light brown, I'm caramel colored. My sister is darker. And so we um, really didn't fit in in Montbello. Um, it was a predominantly at that time somewhat black community, but on our, on our block, um, it was Mighty Grays and my family, part of my family owns Chubbies. And so a lot of the Cordovas, we all lived on this block. And so it was um, pretty diverse block, but I, I didn't fit in with my family. And so I was always uh, an outcast, didn't look, didn't understand was was said I was black. And then I remember as a kid saying, I could celebrate Martin Luther King Day and Cesar Chavez Day, but I had to choose one. And so I used to get jumped um, when I got off the school bus every day in fourth grade um, by two black guys, Robert and Glenn, because I just didn't fit in, right? I wasn't black or Latino, I had an Afro, but I was light skinned and my name was Joseph Silva. And so I struggled with my identity. And so I really then um, leaned towards my Latino side and then after my best friend was murdered standing next to me, I was 14 and he was 12, um, my name was all over the newspaper. And I decided I was gonna go by Jose, 
because by going by Jose gave me the opportunity to reclaim my life. And um, that then really connected me to the Latino side of who I was. It wasn't until I was about 24 where I was like, this is unfair to who I am and really started going through therapy and, th and trying to find out my identity that I really embraced who I was as an African-American male. Um, and it was a protective factor, I really think. I grew, ended up living in West Denver. And so um, people saw me as multiracial, but people saw me as Latino. Um, and, and it was in this segregated state. Colorado was, and Denver was a very racist place in the, in the 80s growing up. And so being black or Latino, well, you were, you were, you, you were at the losing anyways. And so um, when I finally came to like, no, I'm, I'm a black man, I'm a Latino man, the last 17 years of my life, I've been able to really just embrace who I am as a whole. But I wasn't given that opportunity as a kid here growing up in Denver. Um, I didn't grow up in a, in a black family. I grew up in a Latino family um, as a biracial kid. But they really only saw the Latino side of me as well. It was kind of interesting. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, can you share more about um, how racism has changed in Denver? Because you said that Denver was segregated and was racist, very racist. So is it the only So I think I might have said was in context of like, um, it still is. No, Denver is still a very segregated race. You, I think about, I grew up in the communities I grew up in, they were predominantly communities of color. You knew where the whites lived in Southeast Denver. Um, in North Denver, it was um, whites, uh, Italians and Hispanics. And so when you think about North Denver, it's been gentrified now with not Italians, but with white folks, but there was always white folks in North Denver, but they were just mm -hmm. Italians. And so when people have this conversation, I'm like, North Denver was always white and brown folks. That's kind of, you know, they were just Italians and that they had this identity to that. Um, you just have this intermix. Um, Denver is more segregated today than it has ever been. Uh, let me let me correct that. It, it is more segregated today than it has ever been. It is uh, it is uh, more more economically divided than it has ever been before. Um, you know, you can't those that live in North Denver. When I was growing up, their families were working class. They worked in union jobs. They worked. They might have worked at the airport. Might have been. Uh, the husband might have been a custodian and the mom might have uh, worked at the laundromat, but they were able to have a three-bedroom home in North Denver. That's not mm. the case. That's not the case mm. today. That um, It's interesting. A friend posted last night a home in North Denver for $1.1 million, and we all kind of started laughing about this because we're like, look at this. It's a 2,200-square-foot home. We're laughing like off of 30... Um, 27th and Clay, right in the heart of the north side, right? 27th and Clay, mind you. I'll send you the link. We were like, yeah, this house. And it's not redone. It's nothing. It is just the breakfast, a million, 1.1. Not happening. You were, I, That house back in the day sold for $38,000. And then probably in the 90s was $100,000. It's not happening. And so you can't go live in that home if you're not making $120,000 a year. I mean, right now in Denver, to qualify for a $700,000 home, you need to bring 130, 140, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you look at schools, Denver Public Schools, 
it's predominantly uh, students of color, right? The school district is predominantly students of color, and yet those students are not succeeding at the same levels. I'll use this as an example. I'm a graduate of Denver Public Schools, um, was always considered a smart kid, but was homeless and in and out of high school. So I was uh, dropped out, in and out, did graduate with my class on time, took 100 credits. Um, but then I when I got my doctorate degree, I had to take stats. And I was like, uh, yeah, they, uh, so I was reading everything, questioning, asking questions. And I was, I, they set me up for failure, right? If I had not been somebody that had the power enough to ask questions, seek out support, I probably, most kids would have probably walked away. I was a 37 year old man learning statistics, learning stats, right? Um, that says something. So I would have never, they weren't preparing me for a job in, to go work at Goldman Sachs, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so how did you get, what was your support system like, or what, how do what was your support system like? And how did you journey from homeless Jose and struggling to Dr. Silva? Like, yeah. how did that happen? It's an amazing story. Thank you for that. You know, it's, um, I was 14, Frank gets murdered, I'm in eighth grade. And immediately that first night, and I, I called this woman last night and thanked her, they sent a victim's advocate to the scene. And Kim Holmes came into my life and that was like the first person that became a mentor. And immediately then Kim set me up with another mentor. And the church community I was a part of took me to this event, they were throwing these hip hop events and they brought in Christian rappers and Save Our Youth gave me a, a mentor. And so they paired me with this white evangelical Christian mentor when I was 14 years old. And I laugh about that uh, because of the context of the conversation of the conversations we were having. But then the community around me, um, the city and county of Denver gave me a leadership role to, be, to work as the Safe City Youth Chairman, as the Youth Mayor of Denver. So I started to be able to fight against systems. I had mentors. Um, I was working. Um, and, and I was also a break dancer. And so that kind of kept me out of trouble. But I had homies in the hood that were in gangs. I was hanging out with the gangs. I was like, got beat into a gang. But I wasn't the kid that went out and like robbed people. I never wanted to rob. I never wanted to get in a stolen car. I always knew that there was more out there. And it was a program when I was 16. I went to a, 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 a four day retreat on a college program. And I wrote my college statement and I did my financial aid. And I realized that I was college material. And I went back and I divorced my mom. I took my mom to court in Colorado, divorced her, emancipated myself, and took 100 credits. And I was like, I can go to college. And it was at that moment that the number of mentors from the age of 14 to 18 that was just in my life that said I was better, that I had opportunities. I mentioned Veronica earlier, put me on a board and gave me the ability to oversee a $5 million budget to create the Santa Fe Arts District in Denver and open the first. So I was the chairman of that board in, in 2000, right? With Jay Salas. And so people, they were flying me around the country with the Annie Casey Foundation. I was speaking in Baltimore in Florida and DC. And all of a sudden I was had this voice of this kid to be able to say, we can do better. And testifying before Congress at 23 years old and telling Congress how they failed all these white men and Kennedy and everybody, you failed society and this is how you can do better. And here's the plan to get there, always have plans. Um, and so I really thank my mentors and those that came in my life 
part of it was my church, but then I left my church because I was like, yeah, you guys just, you guys are screwing me. But when I was 17, I walked away from Christianity because I felt like that was um, not doing good for me um, and what I was engaged in. But it was the mentors that were around me that gave me a voice and said I mattered. And uh, the journey wasn't easy. Went to college, dropped out at 24 because I couldn't, ran out of scholarship money and financial aid. I went to work and then went back to school at 31 and uh, finished my bachelor's degree in 15 months. Did my master's in a year and finished my doctorate degree in two years and 10 months. And uh, yeah, so uh, and, and, you know, lots of work. I've run for public office. I've raised $40 million for kids, started a foundation. And um, it was, I just wanted, I didn't want to be that statistic that looked back on my life where they looked back and said he could have done more. Um, and it's never been about money for me because I could have went and worked for Goldman Sachs or anywhere. I said, and it's about my community. We give back. Um, and uh, it's not been easy. Tons of failures. I was an alcoholic. You know, you grow up as a Latino. And, and uh, let me just not, not, let me not be. We grew, I grew up in a Latino family that were drinkers. And every other family around me that I grew up around were drinkers. And so it was something who I was. And I was 31 and I quit drinking, which was probably one of the best things that I ever did in my life. Um, it created clarity. And now I can have one or two beers every few months if I want. Like, I don't even drink, but like we have stuff. We were throwing out bottles last night as we packed that had been there for like five years wine. And we're like, they don't need that. Like, they don't need that. Right. And so that's the thing. Um, uh, and therapy and therapy. Um, I call it the tune up campaign. Just like we tune up our cars and we give oil changes to our cars and we change our tires, we need to tune up our body. And part of that is our mental wellness. Mm -hmm. um, what can you say to folks? Um, I don't know which question you want to answer first. My first question is, um, what can you say to folks who have you in their classroom? Mm. Yeah, like that. Middle uh, school and high schooler. Like, yeah, you're sitting so in the like, like, what do you say to educators? Yeah. Um, to to edge my peers or to students? Um, so let's pretend that you, yeah. there is um, there is a Jose in a class whose best friend got murdered, who comes yep. from all of the things, because gotcha. there are plenty of Jose's today in 2021. Yep. Um, what what can you say to the teachers, to the school admin, to those folks who see Jose? Yes. What message do you have to tell them? Yeah, great. And this is what I say. Um, and this is what I would want them to say to them. It might be in a nicer way, but this is the, the title of my next book is Why Society Doesn't Give a Fuck About You. You had to be a player, participant, or observer. And so we need to be real with our kids. And educators need to be real, and they need to set and and, and work and 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 create a pathway for our students to be either a player, participant, or observer. In life, you have to be one of those three things. Sometimes you'll be more than one of those things on a daily basis. The, the reality is the sun is gonna come up and the moon is gonna come up and the, the day's gonna go on. Society does not give a damn about you, but you then have to decide who are you gonna be in society. That means being a player, participant, or observer. I was. That is what I tell to young kids. That is what I tell to, to students, educators. That And then how do you convey that? You convey that with love. You convey that with compassion. You convey that with direction. How do you show kids this? And that's the message that I think anybody, any of us as adults, 
um, should hear and understand, right? Society does not give a damn about us. So we have to be a player, participant, observer. Today you were observing, as we were talking about earlier, like hearing from that friend, like, okay, you know, I'm just going to observe him for a second, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But you also were a player because you're like, you know what? I know I'm going to just, I'm going to take care of myself, right? Right. And so this is what we have to tell our kids um, because sitting on the sidelines is, and, and our educators uh, needs to inform our kids that sitting on the sidelines just is not good enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also, um, what can you say, or can you give some... Uh, clarity or understanding because you said that you were gang adjacent or you were in the gang life but what about those folks who are just unclear about why people would choose gang life gang adjacent life like what is the pull for yeah. those folks who i wasn't in a gang so i don't know can you yeah. explain like what was yeah. that yeah. No one, no one, no one, no one just wants to get beat in by 17 of their homies, right? Like, that's not just like what people are looking for. It's a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a sense of hope. When you're hopeless and you are, you are looking for a place of hope. And if there's a group of individuals that are providing hope, security, right, and belonging, that our young kids are going to lean on that. They're going to seek that. If they're not receiving that at home for whatever instances or reasons why. You know, the BAPs, we were brown and proud. It wasn't about a side. It was all brown folks coming together and coalescing, right? And so people were like, wait a minute, like, these other gangs are all about, like, north side, west side, south side, even, like, like, what brown folks, like, right? Um, but we were also breakdancers. We were a community. We, we lived with each other. We... Um, took care of one another, we traveled the country. Um, and so it was this sense of like, but I'll guarantee you, but the day that, that my auntie found out I got beaten, she called me and she's like, hey, I need you and your homies to rush over here real quick. Rushed over to her house and she came out with the bat and was ready to whoop my ass. So like there were people in my family that did care, right? Um, but there was also people in my family that couldn't provide um, yeah. for the things that I needed to navigate the community that I was in. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, excellent. So what now for you? So you yeah. grew up here, you know, all the ins and outs of the hard side of life, you know, the academic side, you made it through when I am very familiar with the level of whiteness within academia, the struggle. Yeah. Yes. 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 So can you share more about like um how how did you leverage academia um being from your background as a black person in denver as someone that came from um heart struggle um what was it like for you to be sitting in college seat not the first time but the second time yeah so yeah going back right so Going back as a 31-year-old, um, I was investing in myself, and I was like, I gotta do this, right? And and I it was it was um, I, the systems were against me, right? I, like they, like they could care less if I was there. They were really just like pay, um, <laughs> just send. just send me the money, right? And I would say that my getting my bachelor's and then the master's were easy. The systems that I hit the hard part in the doctorate degree when I had to file a civil rights complaint against a professor. 
for minimizing me, for belittling me, what not, and a, a stats professor who didn't wasn't grading my work or my counterparts, my fellow students of color's counter work, but was grading our white allies. Um, I don't think that the issue would have been respected or well received by the institution had not the white allies in the classroom spoke up and said, what Jose is going through is real. Here is documentation of this. We had um, we worked together on projects and our white counterpart would turn in theirs and they would get graded in an A and we'd turn in ours and I'd get a C. And we're like, but it's the same work. So much so that I the system was trying to push me out. Um, a student on scholarship and I fought, uh, pushed against the system, pushed, proved that we were right. They did a, a full investigation and it was founded. Um, that there was bias. And so everybody in the entire program was able to have their work resubmitted and blind graded, right? And um, and so when you're sitting here, and then I had to strategically pick who was going to be my chair to box these people out because I didn't want these people in my stuff, right? And so you're like, I, I shouldn't have to be doing this. Like, I'm fighting to, like, get my degree, like, you know? Um, and so it it, it 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 was difficult, but it, I knew I belonged. I knew I mm. deserved I knew, and my research stated it, and I was the first person to receive my doctorate degree across the stage at the at the graduation ceremony. So that professor had to hear my name called. But it was um it was disheartening because who at this level, if I'm if I'm receiving racism at, at the at the doctoral level, what is happening to those at the at the at the the undergraduate level that can advocate for themselves? Luckily, I was able to advocate, and I had white allies. Right? It was like these white folks, like, yes, it happened. Oh, because they said it happened. Like, like if it would have just been me, like, that's just him. So um, it, it, it was, it, it has inspired me now to be continue to be an advocate more for those that are in school and show up wherever I can for them. Excellent. How, how did you decide and or, and or who taught you that you do belong and that you can belong? Yeah, it was my godfather, my Nino, Philip Folks, um, rest in peace. Uh, he graduated. Um, there was the only other person I ever seen in my family graduate from high school. I was about four years old, watched him graduate from Aurora Central, and he went to the Navy. And he took me to California when I was five, six years old, put me on his shoulders, taught me how to count to a thousand. Um, I told him I wanted to be the president of the United States, and he believed in me since I was young, sixth, third grade. Took me to California at the end of fifth grade. And when I started school and graduated high school, he was the first person there, believed in all of the things that I did uh, up until his dying day when he died on April 13, 2006 of cancer. He believed in me and uh, it broke me when he died. And so that for five years, it was lots of therapy, lots of work. Um, but he, I, 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 I'm packing Doris's flag would be here, but he was the one person that believed in me, good or bad. And, uh, I, I would all to my godfather to my Nino. Ah, that's amazing. So what for you now? Like where are you headed? What are you what 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 are you, what are we doing? Yeah, you, exactly. Like so, I wake up every day like dismantling systems of white supremacy today. What does that look like? And so really right and so really that's my goal every day. So I get to lead a mental health organization. Uh, for our babies, dismantling uh, white supremacy systems there, ensuring that our babies of color receive equitable support. Um, how do we inform our community around mental health and, and infant mental health? Um, I'm writing, I'm working on two books, and so really getting out the literature and, and the words, why society doesn't give a fuck about you, and how to be a player participant observer in life. 
And then the other one is Chapters of Life, which really talks about how I've navigated the work, um, uh, destruction, therapy, um, alcoholism, addiction. Each, each one of those words will symbolize a chapter that speaks to my experiences and how I've navigated that. Um, and then continuing to be a steward for the community here. Uh, we have a great family foundation. We give out thousands of backpacks every year. We, we, give, we contribute, but also holding our politicians accountable. I think that's what you do. When we talked about earlier around gentrification, we talked earlier about economic injustice, we talked earlier about education injustice. It's using my voice and my power um, as, a, as a black man, as a Latino man, and as a doctor. And I often said this last week that getting the doctorate degree made it harder, but it also made it funner because I have a louder voice and uh, people have to listen. And, you know, and I think the other piece is um, helping people hear I think people are great at listening. I say that because you could be a passive listener, you could be somewhat of a listener, you could be a non-listener. That was what makes you a great listener, right? Yeah. Um, listening is not hearing. I want people to. I want to start to help people learn how to hear, and that's really my goal. Is listening is bullshit. I want you to hear because if you can hear people's stories, then you can think about how you can change your behavior, um, and, and how that's impacting somebody else. Uh. So good. Um, what message do you have for black people, for white people, for the brown folks? What do you want to tell them? Yeah. Um, whew. Let me let me take this. I think in a in a in a couple of sections. Um, for my white folks, America is getting brown. It's browner. You have privilege just by the sake of the color of your skin. Howard, will you lean in for your brethren, right? If you don't have a black friend, a black colleague, a white, a Latino friend or a Latino colleague, but yet you donate, you're not doing God's work. You're not doing God's work. And so when you think about who you are instinctively, how are you using your privilege for the betterment of the community? I'm not asking you to go and give your money. I'm asking you to get educated on the historical significances of this country and the oppressive ideals that have led to the destruction of so many brown and black communities in this country. And just you not addressing that, you then are accepting it as okay. I know that is a tough reality here, but if you don't lean in, then you are saying what happened in the past is okay. You have a right to change that and you have an opportunity to change that sitting on the sidelines is, is not worthy and not allowed anymore. Get off your ass and do something. To my brown and black brothers and sisters, quit making excuses. We know all the traumas and pain that has been impacted on us. Get off our asses, it's time, right? No one is gonna give us anything. Every hard work takes time. Nothing comes easy. We love this instant gratification kind of lifestyle and we believe this, that's bullshit. It's been a facade taught to us. We have to get in and do the work and grind out. Go find your passion, articulate who you are, but more importantly, find beauty in the color of your skin. No longer see yourself as a deficit, but as somebody that is worthy. And I'll end with this. Everything in life is temporary except for death. Everything, no matter what you believe, your body here, right? Everything in life is temporary except for death. Challenge all ideas, never stand down, always lead, and be more tomorrow than you were today. If you can do that, you're gonna set yourself up to no longer be a victim because being a victim doesn't get you anywhere. It's time to be a survivor. Mm. 
how can white folks move from, oh, racism, I see it, now what? Mm, mm. <laughs> so, um, great question. Partly is through their action. What is your intentionality and authentic self in terms of that action? How are you engaging in terms of community? Like, right, I think we talk about, uh, I'll use churches for an example. It's so easy in churches to get siloed with your white folks. Um, but what are you doing intentionally outside of your community to build community? Are you seeking out places where you can't be a savior, like get rid of the savior mentality, but where can you walk along somebody, walk alongside a community, right? Are you supporting or mentoring in terms of your skill sets into the community? Um, those are the pieces. And then also, you know, donate, donate your income, all of it. No, give you, give of yourself to the community, um, and support those that are that, that are less fortunate than yourself. I think that's the most important piece. You have to hear it. You can't just see it. You can't just listen to it. You have to hear it and you have to engage in your work. Stop doing mission trips. Mission trips doesn't show you, isn't gonna give you the ability to see that like, oh, um, there. no, do something in your own damn community and go and be impactful in that. You don't need to leave the country to go realize that there's good that needs to be done. There's good that needs to be done. I can guarantee you within five minutes of your house. Mm. What about, um, I didn't ask you this one before we got started, but what about the um, white allies who don't know that they are getting in the way? Yeah, um, because they're not because hearing. They're not hearing, right? They're listening to like, oh, they're here. They're listening to like, oh, we should go get involved. You're not hearing what the needs of the community are. Take a step back. Don't be the leader. We can lead for ourselves. We know our issues. We just need we need white allies to stand beside us and say, yes, these this is this this unjust this injustice is unjust, and we want to stand alongside of you. We can lead our own battles. But we need our allies because the larger the coalition of the group, the stronger the voice. But we can lead our own our own battles. We'd like you there to support us as we've been there for you. When our black and brown men when they gave themselves to fight for a white country in the wars, right? Like let's talk about that, right? Like let's go talk about where we've never been respected in terms of the valor that our men and women have given to fight for ideals where they came back home and still couldn't drink from a water fountain. Like, like, like those are the things when we're talking about like get engaged and get involved and speak about that. Like, don't just post about it. Like, you know, be willing to lose family members over it. Be willing to lose your comfortability and, and who you are for the sake of somebody else that will never have something that you have. Mm, that's good. Okay. Um, what books to read, music to listen to, what's in, what are you suggesting for, mm-hmm. Yep. So Power, Privilege, and Indifference by uh, Gary Johnson. Powerful book for any white person out there. Um, you read it. Powerful book for anybody. Power, Privilege, and Indifference. Um, a great book about relationship and, and therapy that um, has, I always go back to, I've read numerous times, is Tuesdays with Maury. Really talks mm -hmm. about the need to have strong connection and relationship when I lost my Nino. And I always kind of go back to it around springtime, I think, you know, just as you in, in the last year of COVID, thinking about how you can find connection with individuals. Um, and then, you know, for me, I think journaling has been really good. Reflective journaling um, has, has been hugely important. Um, 
I, 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 that's that's where I'm at right now is just in a place of like reflective journaling and writing, um, and then reading those two books. I would I would reach out and, and ask you all um, to to read. Um, you know, for those that have some time, Uncle Tom's Cabin will 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 give you will give you a reality of how we have been used um, in so many different ways: religion, uh, slavery, um, all that. Tough, long read, but. Um, what else do you got going on for yourself right now? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, for those folks who are still on the side, on the fence about therapy, how can you get them to fall on the other side of the fence and to schedule to the therapist? Yeah. Um, so my question then was, was, how was your day yesterday? How was your day before that? How was your day two weeks ago? How was your day a year before that? If you're in the same place that you've been for the last three years and you're still debating therapy, you should probably do therapy. No, but more <laughs> love it. right? Like, like I mean, if you're if you're a circum if you're a victim of uh, behavior and circumstance, look at your behavior. And like, no, but truly, um, it's it it is the most freeing, most healing piece about being able to know that you can unwind things that were unintentionally part of who you are, embedded the trauma that you had no idea that has manifested in other ways. And it's not a white thing. Let me say that again, this isn't a white thing. This is a thing to be able to heal, to find who you are, to better understand why and the connections of, of the pieces that have forced you to function in ways or not function in ways. And just like I said earlier, it's like we, we tune up our cars we should tune up our minds. We have been, we, as people of color, we are born through epigenetic DNA of trauma. And so trauma has manifested inside of us that we don't even know. And so um, what do you have to lose if the last three years have been the same, right? Like what, 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 what do you have to lose if every day for the last three years you woke up feeling the same? And then maybe in the next three weeks you might not wake up feeling like that. It's a win. But more importantly, the, you you got to get over the fear. It is fearful to become vulnerable. We are not taught to be vulnerable people. Becoming vulnerable is a beautiful thing. Making that yeah. phone call yeah. is, is, is tough and difficult, but being able to enter into state of vulnerability will free you. If you want to be free, if you want to release the burdens, um, seek therapy. It did. It worked for me. It, it, I call my therapist my homie, um, because that's what it works for me, right? Like, hey, my homie, he's my homie. But this person has allowed me to navigate and and understand that it wasn't my fault that I found my mother's girlfriend dead of a drug overdose. It wasn't my fault that I couldn't save my best friend's life, or that what my mom endured through and what trauma when my father was murdered in her belly. Why those things were. Um, has been unpacking and unwinding and allowed me to go back to school and get those three degrees in five years and allowed me to not be an alcoholic and allowed me to be the man that I am today. Mm -hmm. um, favorite place in Denver? The place that yeah. everybody needs to go. Uh, favorite place in Denver that everybody needs to visit, I would say is the Sun Valley Kitchen. Um, the Sun Valley Kitchen is located off of 10th and Decatur, um, uh, what is it? 
no, 13th Indicator, excuse me. And it is a wonderful community center and a kitchen that serves refugee um, communities and Spanish-speaking communities. It is, they do a, um, one. it's just a wonderful place. And their kitchen and their lunches is amazing. And um, I'm going to give a nod to the Sun Valley Kitchen that I think that's one place everyone should, should check out. Yeah, I'm going to have to go when I come back. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Okay, my last question. Um, I don't know if you remember the meme in um, on the Facebook and social media for Salt Bay. It was that super sexy guy, and he was cooking the meat, and he did this with the salt. Do you remember this one? Yes. But he just threw some salt. Anyway, do you have any um, last-minute, make sure that y'all get this part, or I forgot to say this part, but <laughs> you need to make sure that I get this across. Do you have any last-minute ideas? Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm trying to see how to say this most like in the night, in the night but I, I would say this is um, no one is going to give you a seat at the fucking table, so make your own seat. But more importantly, you're never going to be invited. So invite yourself in creating your own opportunities. Be an entrepreneur, be an activist, but more importantly, be your own leader, not somebody else's leader. Mm. that is fire this is like a mic drop that was so good yes good. thank you so much for joining us thank on you. the stance this has been a pleasure for the afternoon yes um and also in the show notes i will be sure to put a link to all of your work and how to find you how to support what you're doing and all of the things so um yes all right friend yes Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm really like, ah, oh, this has been good. I'm like, this is so much fun. This this made oh. my morning. Ah, oh, so fun. Okay. I am going to stop recording. Just a minute. Mm-hmm. Man, oh man. Thank you to my friend, Dr. Silva, um, for sharing your expertise, your vision, your story, your, and being so vulnerable as you um, progress th- and journey through your life. Um, I am so grateful for your voice and for your for your um, perspective. So um, to all of my listeners, please find him, support him, um, do what you must in order to um, tell other folks about his work because he is absolutely incredible. Also, um, if you know of other black folks in Denver who need a little bit of spotlight, you can be famous or not famous at all. If you are changing the world in your neighborhood, in your corner of the world, and you are doing that in Denver, then you can be a part of this series, Denver While Black. Um, But also, if you're just a dope person who's doing dope things anywhere in the world, you can also be a guest on my podcast. It is open to you. So... Um, Please follow my work on the internet at Melanated Stamps, um, and that's on Instagram, M-E-L-A-N-A-T-E-D-S-T-A-M-P-S, and also my website, MelanatedStamps.com. You can find all of the links to um, Dr. Silva's work um, and his expertise on my website. It might be a little easier for you to find. Until next time, until I drop another podcast episode, be well, y'all, be kind to each other, eat pancakes, um, drink your water, take a nap, rest, um, send love to folks that um, are in your circle because life is hard, y'all, and we need more kindness. Until next time, y'all. Bye-bye.